At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. And my guest today is someone I've known and interviewed for a very long time. He's Michael Faroli, the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. Over the years, we've covered everything from the housing bubble to the financial crisis to the Fed's introduction of QE and its various attempts to wind it down. Now, of course, the pandemic has made these challenges larger than ever, and we're facing an inflationary environment that is totally new, at least to me. And I'm going to ask Mike how the heck we can get out of this mess. So with that, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. Would you put into context for me the inflation that we're seeing as it relates to anything you've lived through? So, I mean, I guess I've lived through it, but I was quite young when I lived through uh, something similar to this. So, uh, you know, last year we had, uh, you know, we could either talk about the CPI or the PCE, but we had, depending on how you measure inflation, between 5 and 7%. You know, we haven't seen anything even close to that since uh, at least in a core sense, since the uh, early 1980s. So, you know, uh, just a couple of years ago, we would uh, fret and discuss, you know, uh, move on inflation of a tenth or two. Uh, and now we're talking about things, you know, so it might be like, is inflation 1.7 or 1.9? And we'd have big fights about that. And now, you know, this is a whole different order of magnitude that we're talking about in terms of the types of misses on inflation we've seen over the past year. And the upside surprises we've seen over the past year has really been uh, unprecedented in over 30 years. I'm glad you put it that way because you're absolutely right. And the weird thing to me is that it almost feels like people were fighting more over a couple tents here and there than they are about these like massive over, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, it, it doesn't, why is that? Why, why does it feel like everybody's just kind of sitting back and, and watching You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so I think once we started seeing the types of surprises we got early last year, I think people started to, in some ways expect surprises. And I think another aspect is, you know, if we just turn from inflation to growth and activity, really since, you know, since March of, uh, March of 2020, we've been getting huge surprises to the upside and downside on growth. And, you know, in that type of volatile environment, perhaps it just seems natural that we'll also get huge surprises uh, and swings in volatility and inflation relative to what we saw before you know, March of 2020. So, Things are just, you know, very wild over the past two years. Uh, we're hoping they moderate, but uh, I think some of what we're seeing just relates, of course, to how volatile the overall economy's been. And I think the main sense that I get from people, both professionals and the public, you know, aside from the concern that it's not going to pass, is this sense of, well, we did have a pandemic, crazy things are happening. So this is one of those crazy things, and it too shall pass. And I wonder what you would say 
about the idea that this will now kind of resolve itself? I think, <laughs> I think we ought to distinguish, are we talking about an inflation of the type we saw last year? I think that's easy to say we're not going to see another six or, well, uh, it seems like a safe bet that we're not going to see another six or seven percent uh, inflation, let's say, uh, next year. Uh, but I think the bigger question is how much do we return to the pre-pandemic norm of you know one and a half to two percent? So I would I would my forecast is that you know it's something in the middle where some of that really extreme inflation we saw last year uh, fades and some of that truly should be transitory um, as supply chains gradually normalize. Now, of course, the situation in Ukraine may have uh, forestalled that normalization, but, uh, but even as those trans so-called transitory factors subside, what I think what we're seeing as kind of the tide rolls back is that we may be in more of a traditional uh, wage price and what people are calling wage price spiral or overheating of the economy uh, given very tight labor markets, given that uh, the, the gains we're seeing in wages don't look transitory. Uh, no matter how you cut it, it's not being driven. Those gains aren't being driven by outliers. Uh, so I do think with very strong uh, wage growth, that's going to continue to produce a lot of nominal purchasing power, and it's also going to continue to push up uh, business labor costs. So, you know, I do think we're going to see some of these things fade, but when the tide kind of rolls back, I think we're going to find ourselves with trend inflation that's more like 2 to 3% versus before the pandemic when it was 1% to 2%. And that's exactly what I want to ask is, you know, I'm looking at these forecasts and seeing people saying, okay, core PCE could be 3.5% at the end of this year. Maybe it's still in the threes next year. What's the big deal? You know, there's one school of thought that would say, okay, fine. So core inflation used to be one and a half percent and it's 3% now. I wonder if you can give us kind of the long-term sense. You know, we talk about productivity and it's sort of like the difference between one and 2% productivity is the difference between living standards doubling every 15 years versus 30 or something to that equivalent. Mm -hmm. What is the big deal about core inflation that's 3% or three and a half percent instead of 1.8%? Uh, arguably not much, right? So there was, um, prior to uh, the pandemic, when we were dealing for a decade with the zero lower bound problem, in other words, that monetary policy was stuck at uh, close to zero and couldn't cut more to stimulate the economy. There had been a lot of, uh, a lot of economists out there saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had a higher trend a higher inflation target and higher trend inflation right um, now realistically the fed knew that it was politically uh infeasible to raise the inflation target from two to three percent uh but i think there were many economists many very very well respected economists um uh, who said well you know in a perfect world trend inflation should be higher than two percent uh, and you know i think if uh, you know, when, when one thinks about the cost of inflation, uh, as long as inflation is steadily at 3%, then, and everyone expects it to be steadily at 3%, it's really hard to argue that there's a much bigger cost, uh, 3% trend inflation than the 2%.
Yeah, and that's, I remember all of those debates and there's there's a school of thought right now that still says, well, we undershot for so long that overshooting a little bit right now really only gets us back onto a trajectory that you know we sort of should have been on already. I think the problem as we're seeing it is that inflation is not evenly distributed across income groups, nor is it fair to ask those who have more discretionary income, you know, to pay the same or to, to pay price um, hikes that those with less discretionary income don't have a choice about paying. So because of the nature of this one right now, where energy and food prices in particular have been high, now it's morphing into rents, which fall disproportionately on lower earners. They don't really capture the benefits of home price gains. They're locked out of that. So that's where I wonder, it's, it's almost like I wish we had better uh, measures where we could say, okay, here's the CPI for you know, the top 20%, and here's the CPI for the bottom 20%. And again, I acknowledge that wage gains have been strong among lower income groups, but it still feels like in real terms, and the data shows this, you know, real wages, as much as they're up four or five, in some cases, 6%, are still trailing the inflation that we've seen. So it's not like people are coming out ahead and we're obviously seeing that blowback politically. Yeah, you know, two things. First of all, I, I guess two things I would say about the argument that, you know, those economists like Olivier Blanchard have made about a higher translation target was no one was saying we should have, um, you know, like a six or 7% inflation target. Right. Um, and secondly, is as you point out, headline inflation recently has been, uh, you know, firmer than core inflation. And, and yes, food and energy prices are going to be, food and energy are going to be a, a larger share of lower income uh, consumption baskets. So I think the argument for a somewhat higher inflation target is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't apply it to the recent experience. And, and I don't think anyone wanted that kind of uh, inflation that we saw over the past year. Uh, so I think it's, you know, I want to be careful there and, and not kind of dragging uh, those economists into, you know, saying that what we saw recently right. is, you know, what they're aiming for. And then I guess on the, you know, the thing about averaging um, 2%, you know, that's fair, except now, given the inflation we've seen, we you know, on a three-year, five-year horizon, we're already you know, averaging at or above 2%. I think it was wow. just... Uh, two, two, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, that Charlie Evans made this point that's saying, you know, well, when he, when he joined uh, the FOMC in 2000, and I think it was six or seven, um, you know, since then, given the inflation, you know, we've seen, we're right back on target. And it's like, well, I don't think anyone had a, you know, a 14-year kind of, um, uh, you know, averaging in their head when they put right. flexible average inflation targeting to practice. So it might be a bit of a stretch, I think. So what about the argument from here then? Because now it, it is starting to shift. I think the State of the Union tonight is actually sort of an important touchstone for this in some ways, where we're moving from pandemic sort of supply chain driven inflation into a period where we might see more kind of wage gain driven inflation, and also into a period where you have some progressive economists saying, maybe higher inflation is a good thing, is a way to achieve certain policy goals and is necessary given the public investments that they're calling on. So, and maybe that's where Blanchard's argument sort of more falls in, but what about the argument that, okay, three or 4% inflation for the next decade as we fight climate change and you know uh, invest in the US economy in various different ways, that that, that becomes 
kind of this, this supportive policy goal of broader societal goals? So, you know, I guess I, I hear more frequently the two to three than the three to four, uh, perhaps putting too fine a point on it. Uh, I guess the other thing I'd say is that even, I think even most progressive economists would acknowledge that full employment or maximum employment, uh, if we're not there, we're pretty close and that the labor market right now is, uh, you know, is really tight. So the idea that we want to you know, run the economy hotter than it already is. Uh, you know, I don't hear too much buy-in to that idea, uh, even among, I guess I would say center-left economists, but I guess there are always some maybe out there who would you know, go further, but I think for, for most, you know, most people I hear, um, running the economy much hotter than it is now is probably a little more probably a risky proposition, even if you really put a, a lot of weight on, on the employment uh, side of the, of the Fed's mandate. Sure, and, and the reason why I'm asking about all of this is because we face this period of trade-offs where we could either say we're going to fight as hard as we can to bring inflation down, which means you know a lot more Fed tightening, the potential disruption, obviously, that we're already seeing to markets and possibly to the economy in order to achieve that, or this kind of laissez-faire attitude that's more okay, two to 3% isn't that big a deal and it's gonna, it's gonna be worked down on its own naturally. And so that's where I'm curious, you know, the Fed, yes, they're, they're political, they're, you know, there's always a, a feel, it sort of reminds me of the Supreme Court, there's always a sense of, of the public interest mm -hmm. and, you know, each person has their own way of defining what that is and what the trade-offs are to achieve those goals. But it's sort of like you have the data pointing to kind of a, a pretty obvious upward tightening path mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, but I'm just curious how much they're going to pursue that. And of course, now the, the Ukraine crisis throws another wrench in the works. And in fact, not to too much of a pivot here, but you know, this morning I'm looking at bond yields and the 10-year treasury yield is back down towards 1.8% or whatever. Nothing's changed on the U.S. macro outlook, on the inflation outlook, that would justify that. So what's happening is that the bond yield is much lower now than the inflation rate. So the real sort of policy rate is getting more negative. So mm -hmm. we have already a tight economy, a tight labor market, high inflation. And because of this international crisis, we now have more negative real rates. This mm -hmm. feels like precisely the wrong time for that to happen. So how should we expect the Fed to respond when the market thinks they're gonna back off and, and maybe like less now than expected this year, but actually the environment is pointing in a direction where it could become even more overheated. Yeah. So I guess first I'd say, you know, between sort of the extremes of, um, you know, laissez-faire approach to inflation versus, you know, really having to crack the whip, I think the Fed is hoping to, you know, go for that, um, you know, soft landing, right? I think that it's, uh, that's the hope. Uh, now, history has shown achieving soft landings is pretty rare, uh, but I think that's going to be the first um, resort that the Fed's going to try to uh, achieve here. Now, in terms of uh, rates getting more negative, and it, yes, that is kind of paradoxical because if anything, the Fed had already been seeing, you know, one could argue we've already been seeing some 
uh, fruits of the Fed's pivot and that mortgage rates being up 100 basis points, we've actually seen some cooling uh, in the housing market recently, yeah. which is exactly, you know, I'm sure exactly what the Fed wants. Now, if mortgage rates decline from here and housing heats back up, that would be you know, somewhat counterproductive. Uh, now, you know, that being said, there are a lot of uncertainties and I don't think the Fed, you know, the Fed's job here is to um, decide what the rate 10 year rate is. But, you know, over the course of the year, they're going to have to balance these risks. And I, 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 I think at every meeting, they're going to keep uh, tightening unless uh, the Ukraine situation delivers um, a surprise that really does land on our shores. As you said, right now, uh, it's pretty hard to see very major impacts on the U.S. economy. But uh, I think what the bond market probably is pricing in is some, uh, you know, small probability of a much worse outcome. And, sure. Uh, and you know, and it's not the Fed's job to say that that's wrong to price in some, you know, probability of a much worse outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously we all know that the chance of a, a horrible event has just increased. So that's just being priced in. Um, in the meantime, though, it's creating all these kind of, uh, it's making the problems worse that they were previously trying to deal with. So I guess that's my point, which is, yeah, there's a small chance this all goes really poorly. And, and obviously they have to react to that. In the meantime, their fundamentals are looking worse because you have now falling rates, to your point. You have you know, higher oil and energy prices, which, you know, you have now more supply chain disruptions and all of the, the various things that we were sort of hoping would be fading by now. And they're in a position where they can either confront the small chance of a really significantly bad outcome for global growth, or in the meantime, the, re the reality that the problems they're trying to fight have just gotten a little bit worse. Yeah. You know, the nice thing about having a meeting every six weeks is that you don't have to decide what yeah. you're going to do for the rest of the year, right? right. So you, you can set policy in mid-March for what do you think the most likely outcome is between um, March and early May, and then reassess when you get to May. Uh, so fortunately, the Fed doesn't have to decide all these big things. And uh, I think for the mid-March meeting, you know, I sounds like what they have seen has not been enough to um, dissuade them from taking the first step to, to tightening, uh, you know, as both, um, you know, or as uh, presumptive Vice Chair Brainerd said, it would be the first in a likely series of hikes. Um, uh, but again, if, if that turns, if the, the global situation turns out to be, uh, you know, much, uh, bigger problem for growth here, then they can reassess that when they get to May. But I, I would think for March, um, a 25 basis point hike seems, seems like a pretty good bet at this juncture. One thing it probably has done is made them want to be a little bit more careful about messaging and forward guidance and press conferences, because there is a school of thought, you know, in the past couple months that they should just do away with all that. And the Fed itself, Powell himself kind of hinted at that, like, we're no longer in the business of forward guidance. You know, everything is live and on the table. We have to just call it as we see it. But now you almost get the sense that this is not the time to be spooking markets too much. So I do think in that sense, the crisis may have changed things a little bit. I mean, do you think we'd ever get to a point where they really wanted the element of surprise? So I don't think the element of, I'm not sure what the 
benefit of the element of surprise uh, for monetary policy really is. Um, now, you know, we can we, <laughs> we can debate the usefulness of things like the dots, right? Um, personally, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, I don't think they have a lot of uh, value after, um, after you've left the zero amount. Uh, but at the same time, I think for the Fed, it is very hard to, once you have taken a uh, increased transparency in some way, uh, to, to then undo that, right? So it's very unlikely they're going to take, you know, end the dots. Uh, so in that sense, they're kind of locked into providing at least some form of forward guidance, even if, you know, Powell will then kind of downplay the dots and say, you know, they're just an input into, into the decision-making process. Um, but they are, I think, in some ways kind of stuck with, with providing guidance, uh, which, you know, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but uh, whether it's all that useful, I think, is more of the debate. Well, and I think the markets have shown us that even with some guidance from the Fed this year, they can still throw themselves into a tizzy. Um, you know, even when they're kind of told the plan, that doesn't mean they're going to react kindly to it. So, yeah, there's there's so much else on the table still. I mean, we could talk about, you know, the Fed put and, you know, how much you think they are likely to react to the sell-off in markets. Um, that's definitely been one kind of topic of conversation. And, yeah, just this general idea that, you know, this environment is different. And we all lived through the, the last decade where they had to keep backtracking and markets would sell off and, you know, credit spreads would widen and metals prices would collapse and growth was just so low. And so, you know, in this time is different. And so I, I think we're at the beginning of that and maybe it will just continue to get more different. Um, and so how, what do you think their reaction function is now to the markets? I don't think it's super sensitive at this point to, particularly to, to, to equities. Um, as long as we aren't, you mentioned credit spreads, I think as long as the financial system feels like it's working uh, and we're not seeing signs of uh, uh, funding strains or, um, uh, or other you know, symptoms of financial stress, then I think, uh, movements and equities of five to 10% aren't gonna be uh, something that really um, changes the trajectory they're on. Now we have seen a little bit of uh, uh, strain in some uh, cross-currency funding markets, but nothing, I don't think that's um, um, enough here really to, to, to get the Fed to, to rethink their path. The other thing I would say is, you know, you mentioned the prior decade and in a lot of those periods in which the Fed backtracked, notably, you know, after 20, after liftoff in, in early 2015, or late 2015, uh, you know, you also saw a lot of dollar strength, um, which, uh, you know, obviously had a big impact on the manufacturing sector here. So I think we got to think through all of these financial conditions and how they, um, how they're affecting the economy. And, but, but I think for equities, that's, I don't think that alone is going to be something that's going to get the Fed to uh, to veer off off the track they're on. Yeah, I have one more question on the balance sheet, really, and that's been kind of pushed to the back burner with everything else going on. But do you think that they should be using the balance sheet as a tool to do quantitative tightening instead of these rate hikes that 
it's interesting. This is why I love Twitter. You know, I get a lot of audience feedback and people are always upset with rate hikes because they increase borrowing rates and it doesn't feel good. And the, what you get on your savings is still so low now. It doesn't feel like it's a, a good trade-off. So a lot of the public is kind of like, why are they doing this now? Inflation's already bad. The cost of living is already high. Now they're making, you know, the cost to borrow high. And, and yeah, we could say, well, that's in order to keep the cost of living down. But, you know, quantitative tightening would work a little bit more in the background some argue it would be better for steepening the curve, you know, targeting the housing market more specifically. What are your thoughts on all that? So, you know, I think the interesting thing about quantitative tightening, right? So that you know, rate hikes should push up the front end of the curve. QT should push up the back end of the curve, rates in the back end of the curve. I think there's a lot of uh, skepticism among economists that it would uh, push up the back end of the curve that much. So for a couple of reasons. One, I think as we revisit some of those estimates of how much, so let me back up. A lot of the thinking was, all right, what's the impact of QE in lowering long-term rates? Then you just take QT and reverse the sign. Now, I think there is some skepticism about that argument because as we rethink those QE estimates, perhaps they didn't actually do all that much to lower longer-term interest rates. Um, and in that case, perhaps QT wouldn't do all that much to raise longer-term interest rates, particularly if QT happens over you know, a longer period of time than the QE uh, episodes did. So I'm not really sure we can expect QT to be used um, you know, that nimbly to actually adjust longer-term interest rates. Second point I'd say is, <laughs> you know, you'd mentioned like, why are they, why are they doing? I mean, this is, they're trying to slow the economy. And they're not going to say it like that, but that's what they're they're trying to do. They're trying to restrain yeah. restrain aggregate demand, uh, get people to save more, spend less, uh, you know, incentivize less, uh, you know, business borrowing, uh, push up the value of the dollar. They're they're trying to slow growth, and it doesn't sound like uh, <laughs> you know when you say it that way. It obviously doesn't sell well in Peoria, but that's that's the reality of what they're trying to do. Exactly. And so that that sort of reaction from the public is the point um, in some ways. Um, I think that I think it is just more complicated today because people don't feel like it's a roaring economy that needs to be slowed. They feel like prices are up and it's the Fed's fault. And now it's the Fed trying to make things worse. But I guess that aside, here's what I want to ask you as we leave it is there's a few ways in which it the current environment could become one that's a little bit more difficult. And I think one of those ways is inflation expectations. But I want to ask you, like, what are the main things you're watching in markets or in the economic data, the kinds of indicators that wouldn't have seemed that important a couple of years ago, but now take on super importance as far as you're concerned? So you did mention inflation expectations. Uh, whether, you know, in those measures we're watching, uh, because the Fed's watching them, in particular, uh, the New York Fed has a monthly survey of inflation expectations, which only dates back to 2013. And then the University of Michigan survey of consumer sentiment has a measure of longer term inflation expectations. Uh, both of those, particularly the latter one, the Michigan measure, have been uh, remarkably well behaved. I say remarkably because we've had, you know, 19, uh, early 80s type inflation, um, but, you know, the inflation expectations looks more like the you know, 90s or 2000s. So that's probably been one reason why the Fed has um, been uh, content here to, uh, 
to, to signal 25 basis point moves rather than a 50 basis point move, right? At least most of the committee doesn't want to go in 50 basis point increments. I think if you felt that inflation expectations uh, were getting out of hand, um, that might uh, that might change. I guess something else that we and others are looking at more now than, than we weren't before is within all the various um, uh, factory surveys are indicators of supplier delivery, uh, delivery speeds, which people are taking now as a proxy for the supply chains. Uh, those have remained stubbornly high, uh, and uh, but that is something we, you know, we and others you know, are looking at more now than we, you know, five or 10 years ago, I think that was kind of an afterthought, but given the importance of these supply chains, we're looking at that quite a bit. Um, what else? Uh, housing, housing is always pretty important, but particularly in an environment in which, uh, you know, Fed is tightening uh, or about to tighten policy. That's one area where you really reliably see uh, activity move inversely with interest rates. So that's another reason why we would probably focus on, on housing quite a bit at, at this juncture. And finally, then, do you take the slow, like, do you read it as a slowdown? This is so different from 06, right? When the slowing housing market was a tell that something, that trouble was brewing. Do you take a slowing housing market now as a good thing when you see those kind of data points come in, you want to see some moderation there, whether in prices, sales, you know, increase in inventories, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think you do, given, um, given that uh, vacancy rates are super low, it's not like there's excessive house, you know, home building. Uh, but what we're seeing in house prices looks a little frothy. That is starting to spill over into rents, which is you know, a big part of the inflation gauge. So you would like to see some, uh, some cooling in, um, in house price, uh, um, house price appreciation. Uh, but we also just want to see how overall the economy is responding to higher interest rates. Normally, one might look at auto sales as another sort of reliably um, interest rate sensitive uh, sector. However, autos have been so funny lately uh, that sales are going to be driven likely for at least the next you know, six months. Sales are probably going to be driven more by availability of inventory right. rather than financing conditions. Uh, so autos are probably going to be a little less reflective of business cycle conditions than they normally would be. Well, it is a very different environment than the one that shaped my early years, certainly. Mm -hmm. And um, I appreciate your time today, Mike, and kind of walking yep. through a lot of the different, a lot of the different areas that we're going to be watching. And again, all of this as this awful crisis is brewing internationally that could obviously complicate things even more. So. With that said, I'll let you go, and I really appreciate your time today. Sure. Great talking to you, Thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to follow the Exchange Podcast for more discussions like this one. And catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM.
a leading global asset manager. 